So I've been asked to talk about healthy communities of tomorrow. And North Coast has its challenges, and I'm sure you'll hear about some of those from me and Julie in a minute. And um, you know, if you sit in metropolitan areas in New South Wales, you think of um, this area as an offshoot of Sydney. That's just a very small part of Ireland. It's a very small part of the North Coast and doesn't typify it at all. It's a very diverse, very broad community, um, and, but also a very coherent community. There aren't many communities who would actually deliver an audience like this uh, for a consultation, which shows the engagement of the community in the North Coast. And that is one of the signs of a healthy community. Um, Julie and the two uh, PHN and the two LHDs in this area have um, a, a program which many of you know about the North Coast Collective, largely at this stage focused on mental health, which I know of no other example of that in Australia, where you have such tight and a trusting relationship, which is about freeing budgets to do what's most effective to move from what's called low-value care to high-value care. A lot of what we do, we cling to, when you're a clinician, you like what you do, and you think what you do is right, but it's not always the best use of money or your time. And how could you actually get better value? And uh, I'm sure I'm not to just thunder away, but the sort of work that they're doing, the mathematical modeling that they're doing, will actually start to deliver better planned services, but it can't be done without you because you can't have people sitting in an office in Coffs or Ballina deciding what's right for very diverse communities. You have to be engaged in that process. Otherwise, yet again, things will be delivered to you. They might look on paper and by scientific journals to be the right thing, um, but it's a question of adapting what's the best scientific evidence to what's practical on the ground. So I wanted to talk a bit more broadly about um, healthy communities, what makes them, and what drives them. And there's a few things that I'd like to touch on. And the first is, and it really is what drives the planning for public health services. There's health inequity wherever you look. So depending on how much money you are, have, how much education you have, what's your postcode, which time you live in. You have a very different trajectory through life and through your health and well-being, and indeed in terms of how long you live. Um, and people call it the gradient in healthcare, the social gradient, um, but it occurs in every country, it occurs in every part of Australia. Um, and, it, and, and people think that they know why it occurs, uh, why there's a difference between some people, uh, you know, why there's a gap. And we talk a lot about the totally unacceptable gap between non-Indigenous Australians and Indigenous Australians. And you saw that with Auntie Carol, you know, yet another day in her life with sorry business. Too often, too young. The loss, the reason you have a gap, life expectancy gap in Aboriginal communities, is not that Aboriginal people die at the age of 60 rather than 80. The reason you have the life expectancy gap is that young Aboriginal people die. And it's true also of 
other communities as well. The, the um, city that I come from, Glasgow in the west of Scotland, the life expectancy gap between the suburb that I was lucky enough to grow up in and the poorest suburb is actually 25 years. 25 years. And that loss of life occurs in the 30s and 40s age, age group, not in the 60s. And it's important to focus on that because you think um, that the solution is better healthcare for older people, which you absolutely must have. But in fact, it's the causes of death in those age groups. So it's premature coronary heart disease, it's unacceptable levels of cancer, it's mental health problems causing suicide, it's car accidents, some of which are actually due to mental health problems, it's substance use. And I'm not tiring Aboriginal communities with that, it's true in non-Indigenous communities as well. When there's a life expectancy gap, don't look to the 60-year-olds, look to the 30 and 40-year-olds, and perhaps even younger than that. That's where the loss of life occurs. So what determines health and well-being in the community? So you know, let's go back to that gradient. It's a gradient of life expectancy, it's a gradient of cancer risk, it's a gradient of cardiovascular risk, it's a gradient of mental health risk. It goes across the board. There are very few conditions where when you're better off, you get more of it. Breast cancer is one of the few. Mostly, the better off you are, the later in life you get, you, you get these problems, including dementia. So what determines it? So everyone in this room probably thinks they know the answer. Oh, it's because you're better educated. Well, that's true to some extent. I don't know how many of you remember Yes Minister, Yes Prime Minister, and how you had Sir Humphreys, and um, you, you were the, the highly rigid British civil service, and they did a lot of fun. It was a very, very, very funny series. Um, there have been two studies of Whitehall, the British civil service. So it's a very hierarchical organization. You know, what sort of desk you sit at, what sort of phone you have, and, and very well measured. And, the second Whitehall study was run by, uh, eventually was run by Michael Marmot, who's an expatriate Australian who's lived in London for most of his life. And the question he wanted to ask was, if you look at so the British civil service married the rest of Britain, it's got a health gradient. Um, why was there a health gradient? So they knew a lot about these people in the civil service. So they said, well, is it education? The fact that Sir Humphrey went to Oxford or Cambridge, and the person who comes in and sweeps the floors after he's got away is a newly arrived migrant from Pakistan with no education. Well, that's got a bit to do with it. Education is a, an extremely important determinant of health and well-being and life expectancy. And it's not about health education, it's about education, the things that go with it. And I might come back to that later. But if you remove education statistically from the, from the graph, it flattens out, so what the idea is, if you find the magic, the secret sauce, the secret sauce that creates the gradient, the gradient will disappear or go flat because that you've removed the, the key factor. So if you remove education, it goes a little bit flatter. It's part of the reason, but it's far from the total reason. Well, is it that um, Sir Humphrey eats better, has lower cholesterol, uh, it's, and goes out jogging and afford to the gym? True, but not as true as you might think. Flattens a little bit, it's not the total answer. So they removed everything that they knew about and they still had a gradient. 
So there was a mysterious factor sitting in there which created that gradient. And what Marmont and his colleagues did was factor in, because they suspected that it was something quite deep in our being that was causing this problem that was not easy to explain. So they looked at something, and those of you who've done psychology know more about this than me. They looked at a psychological phenomenon called locus of control. For shorthand, let's call it control. And crudely, this would not get me a pass in my psychology exam, but as any psychologist knows will do, but crudely put, it's how much control do I feel I have over my life and work? It's mostly studied in the work situation, but it's true of life as well. And how much, and by the sense of control, what are the two the dimensions of the sense of control? It's how free am I to make decisions about my life? And how pressed do I feel? How, how much does the system press me in a certain direction where I'm really galloping away to try and achieve things, but I've got no control over the decisions I make which could affect that? And so when they factored in locus of control, which is measurable, it went almost flat. Control turned out to be not quite the total secret sauce, but a major part of it, a major factor, probably the most significant factor, not the only one, I'll come back to this in a moment, that determined the gradient. So what's that about? So that's about people in the workplace, in the white hole situation, in the middle of the system, being told what to do and not being given any choice in how they do it. It's about single parents with three kids on a pension who are so pre you know, who are not stupid people. Mostly, you know, you know, mostly they are women and they are not stupid, but they feel utterly helpless in their life and they feel out of control. So, is this some sort of soft, you know, Marxist pinko idea here of you know, control and anti-management you know, story? Well. You can make that choice if you want to, but in fact, there's solid science behind this. Bruce McEwen, who's a neuroscientist at Rockefeller University in New York, um, this is a university that I think has had only 14 Nobel Prizes, um, he has studied what he calls allostatic load. Because what happens when you lose that sense of control over your life is that you feel stressed. So we're not talking about the stress of going to you know, um, a theme park and going on the Big Dipper or the ride of death. You, this is the stress that's chronic, that's erosive, why it grinds you down day by day by day. And he has studied what happens to people in that situation. And he calls that allostatic mode. We need some stress in our lives. We need, if you don't have any stress in your life, you've got no performance drive. But it's when there is overload, suppose this allostatic load, you get a problem. And when there's high allostatic load, when there's a high degree of chronic stress, the hormones and chemical messengers in the brain are affected and shift. And remember, there is no difference between the mind and the body. We've got this notion that the mind and the body are separate. If our brain dies, we have no mind. Our mind is, our mind is part of it. It is a construct of the brain, which is a construct of the body. The gut 
has almost every chemical transmitter that exists in the brain. Our body, our body and our brain communicate with each other on a nanosecond by nanosecond basis. What happens in the brain affects the rest of the body. Not just our heart rate, not just our pulse and blood pressure, not just how our gut works or whether we're fertile or not, it also affects our immune system. And these show very profound effects on a variety of medical conditions. So this idea of control and chronic stress has a huge influence on our health and well-being, but very materially. It just doesn't affect us, it just doesn't make us feel crap. It actually increases the risk of heart disease and cancer and other problems as well. So it is not benign. Now, if you look at the process that you're going through today, it is not a trivial process. NDIS as it should work, my age care as it should work, are not trivial processes because they are about putting control into people's hands and not feeling that you are at the mercy of a hidden bureaucrat or some big corporation that's making profit out of you, that you have a sense of controlling your own destiny. So the fact that you are actually here today, so people talk about community engagement, community development. It's very easy to think that's just a nice to have. You know, it's ideologically sound to have community development, community engagement. It's actually much, much more than that. This is, it is not, I keep on using that word, a trivial exercise. Putting a sense of control and realistic control, I mean, obviously, things that you'll come up to today, there's no way on earth that Julie and Wayne are going to be able to deliver everything that you want today, but you know that before you walk in the door. And it's not enough to be heard and acknowledged, but it's, it's actually important that you are here and stating that and creating aspirational goals, which you know are going to take time. And some will be easily achievable. But the fact that you're here shows a healthy community. The fact that you want that there's a sense in the community that it is engaged is important. And you are the community leaders, that's why you're here today. And what's important that that has spread beyond here, that to engage others in that process and that they don't feel hopeless because being engaged and being able to make decisions, because what they found is, for example, so it's not just, so let me just go to the control thing. There's another researcher called Len Sign at the University of California, Berkeley, friend of Marmot's, and he, he was skeptical of this control idea, because when you even look at control, the line doesn't go completely flat. You've still got a gradient. She so said, there's something else in there. And he looked at what it meant to actually have a low locus of control, sense of control of your life. And what he looked at was self-efficacy. It was about the ability to make decisions about it. So what happens when you lose that control is that you lose the ability to actually make decisions and feel that you can act and do something. So for example, he studied single women at home, single mothers at home with three you know, with kids and how they responded to the system and they found that these women, regardless of the level of education, if they had to phone up for social services and it was a, a switchboard that says dial one for this, dial two for this, they actually hung up. Their, their sense of being able to act was so low, they couldn't even choose 
the, the number to punch on the dial. People can't necessarily, when people are feeling like this, they can't, you know, people simply you know, they become depressed, but they can't even activate themselves to go out and actually you know, make an appointment. There's some women with breast cancer, with PhDs who are in business, corporate, corporate women. They've studied that within weeks of developing breast cancer, their locus of control plummets and their ability to make decisions on it because they become part of the system which runs them. Yeah, you've got to be at the clinic for your chemo next week. Oh, you've got to be there for your radiotherapy. You've got to do this, you've got to do that, and move around. And, and you're, you're, you're now in the middle of a system which drives you rather than, which is why people like Julie and William talk all the time about patient-centered care, where the system is actually wrapped around you. And when he factored in self-efficacy, the line actually did almost go flat. And so it's the ability to act that makes a difference. So why? So, but it's not the only part of the story. We, I, I mean, I've spoken about this before. Some of you might have uh, heard me talking about it. And it'll be said today by somebody somewhere, but maybe not now that I'm going to say it. But um, every day of the week, you turn on the telly, you turn, hopefully you're turning on the radio around the telly, but um, somebody says, we're stuffed. We're an aging society. It's all coming to an end. Um, the young are going to be supporting the old. Um, the world is going to come to an end. You've got 29-year-old PhDs in economics in the Treasury Department in Canberra who just written the intergenerational report. It, you know, it'll, say, it'll say, guarantee, can't afford a PBS, can't afford a healthcare system, can't afford anything, because we've got an aging society. It is complete bullshit. We do not have an aging society. The problem is simply one of numbers. If I was giving this lecture, uh, it wouldn't be such a fancy RSL in 1930, but if I was giving this lecture in Ballina, you know, talk, talk to you in Ballina in 1930, life expectancy was going up at the same rate in 1930 that it's going up now, three months a year. In fact, it had been going up three months a year since the early 19th century. Three months a year, a little bit of a blip for world wars, but by and large, that's the way it tracked. Do you think they talked in 1930 about the aging society and the problems of the aging society? Absolutely not. There wasn't the slightest glimmer of that conversation occurring. And yet, we continue to age, we continue to live longer at that kind of rate. The problem is, we get sick before we die. And, that, and there's even a good news story there, is that dementia rates are falling, cancer rates are falling, coronary heart disease rates are falling. There's good news stories wherever you look. Um, and so if I was talking in 1930, you probably got sick five, seven years before you died. Really sick, so sick that you actually need serious care. Now it's down to about two years. You get really sick, or you're really frail, you may need residential aged care or major, major hospital interventions. Yeah, we, we gather stuff along the way. Because we're living longer, your hips wear out, if your, mark, your knees wear out. Um, the, it's, it all really looks. Um, but the system fixes you up. Yeah, it does, cost, it does cost a bit of money. There's no question about that. You know, maybe your arteries clog up and we'll unstent them. But essentially, we're delivering people into their 80s and 90s 
in good shape and biologically young. And so we're, we're actually getting the period of sickness before you die is shorter. It's just later. And the only problem are the boomers. There was a boom in numbers of births after World War II, and you've got a bulge in the population going through. And yes, healthcare has become more expensive. When I was a newly graduated doctor um, in Scotland, somebody had a heart attack. They would come in, um, they would go to coronary care, and they would go to coronary care. Nothing would happen to them in coronary care. They wouldn't even get aspirin. We had no cholesterol. This is living memory. I'm not that old. Um, they were like, the only reason they went to coronary care is that they were monitored in case they went into ventricular fibrillation, cardiac arrest, and they could be needed to be snapped out. That's the only reason they were in coronary care. And then after coronary care, they came to the general ward, and they laid in a bed for three weeks, and eventually we got brave enough to send them home. And you all know what happens now. You go into Lismore Hospital, or Gold Coast Hospital, or wherever it is you go, Wade hopes you go to Gold Coast Hospital, no, seriously. Um, but you go to the, you go to the hospital. A cardiologist comes and you they open up your arteries there and then put in the stent or your thrombolysis if you're in a country hospital and you go home a day later and and you put on statins and aspirin to keep you from actually having another one. We used to send them home and they would they would die within a very short space of time of another heart attack because we didn't do anything for them. Now there's much more that we can do. So healthcare is more expensive, but it's basically numbers. So we're not an aging society. So the question is, why are we living longer? Because there's no question that, and this does go to healthy communities and what's important, and it does go to the conversations you're going to have um, for the rest of the day. So why are we living longer? So if you look at human history, men have lived longer than women for almost all of human history. Women living longer than men is a, a, a recent phenomenon which really started to occur in the mid to late 19th century. And the story I'm going to tell you is one where this, the story changes all the time. And there are different reasons why we are living longer, and they will continue to change. So, why did women live shorter lives than men? It's because having a baby was very dangerous. Women died in childbirth. Women died in pregnancy. Babies died after childbirth, after delivery as well. So there's a high perinatal mortality rate. And life expectancy is an average. So it's an average of how long you expect to live from the day that you're born. So average life expectancy in Australia, 84, 83. We're up there in the top five or six countries in the world. It's a very, very narrow band between the two. Um, but that's an average. If you are born, you know, I'll take metropolitan Sydney as an example rather than locally here. But you know, a baby born in Vaucluse or Rose Bay is going to live to 100, whereas a baby born in Madrid is probably only going to live to 70. And remember, of course, that midlife death thing, which is the average there. So it, it, is, it is an average. So the fact that mothers and babies die brought the average down. 
If you survive childbirth, you actually live to quite an old age. So it's a myth that there were no elderly people, older people around in the old days. There were plenty of older people around because they'd survived through. And again, I'm coming back to this notion of dying younger. So how, what, what changed there? Well, you have to go to Vienna to uh, an obstetrician called, or a doctor called Semmelweis, who noticed there were two wards where women went to lie in and have babies. One was run by midwives, another was run by medical students and doctors. The midwives' ward had a fraction of the mortality rate, largely through purple sepsis, in other words, infection after delivery, than the ward with the, the, doctor, the medical students. So he did a bit of a study. And in fact, we realized that in fact, what was happening was that the medical students were coming to the labor ward after having done an autopsy on women who died of purple sepsis. Now, this is before the germ theory of disease. Nobody knew about germs. But he decided that they were obviously carrying something, he didn't know what, from the post-mortem room to the labor ward. So he did something really radical. He insisted they wash their hands. He went mad because he was victimized and effectively run out of time. But what happened was that was the birth of modern obstetrics. And whilst you, you get these ideological things, you know, obstetrics is patriarchal and making uh, an artificial medical model out of something that's natural, let me tell you the countries in the world which have taken that model and said that, you know, you can go under a bush and have a baby, still have unacceptably high levels of maternal and child mortality. Countries and places that have adopted modern obstetric care, doesn't mean to say it has to be in human modern obstetric care, actually achieve very good maternal and child mortality rates. So modern obstetrics increased life expectancy dramatically in the 19th century, particularly for women and babies. Then along came along the germ theory of disease. Now, I need to throw in a few wild cards here. Um, so what, the archetypal social disease is tuberculosis. So tuberculosis is um, an infection of the lungs, the bowel, to spread throughout the body, high mortality rates throughout the world, and it was very prevalent in the 19th century. Nobody even knew what caused it until a, a, a researcher called Robert Koch in the late 19th century discovered above the tubercle bacillus and he, he actually came up with the formula to prove that above cause if you wanted to you know how do you know that above causes disease and it's called the cost postulates putting that aside he discovered that the tubercle bacillus caused tuberculosis it took the medical profession about 20 years to accept that fact so who's that wrong um it's always taken very professional time to do that but there's always been this tussle between the preventive doctors or the public health people who want to prevent and the curative people who, you know, like concrete and wires and things that go pain. And after World War II, the curative doctors triumphantly said, we've conquered TB. Look at the rates of TB. They're going down. It's what we've done. We've introduced streptomycin, this new antibiotic, and that's made all the difference to tuberculosis. The public health people said, like, as usual, you're talking crap. If you look at the graph of tuberculosis, it's a straight line. And if we remove from the x-axis the dates, and you just look at the line, 
show us where streptomycin came in because you should see a dip. And there was no dip. So I said, it's what we did in the 19th century that made the difference. Um, you know, better housing, better nutrition, sewage, that sort of thing. An Australian historian working with a German historian said, you both wrong. They had looked at parishes in the early 19th century, side by side. Now, they didn't know what they didn't know what tuberculosis was, but they knew they called it consumption, wasting disease, and they also had very good records. And they could see villages and parishes side by side, just as poor, just as badly nourished, you know, exposed to famine, just as bad housing. And yet one parish seemed to live longer than the other and seemed to get less of what looked like TB. So what was the correlate? What actually made the difference? And they did the same thing with Michael Marmot in the White House study, tried, tried to remove all the factors they could. The factor that stood out that made a difference was parishes that taught young girls to read and write lived longer. Female literacy. Now, if you again think this is some Marxist pinko conspiracy, this has now been proven time and time again in the 20th century. Female literacy is one of the most positive determinants of health and well-being in a community. It's, um, you know, and once you get it, then there's other things that come into play. But let me tell you, the Taliban know this. ISIS knows this. Many religious fundamentalists know this, which is why they try and prevent women from being educated and why radical Muslim organizations will blow up schools and kill teachers who teach girls to read and write. So why, what is the mediator here between female literacy and living longer? It's complicated. Part of it is probably about control, is that when you know more, you feel more in control. Part of it is about wealth creation. Part of it is about not being so susceptible to mumbo-jumbo and superstition. All sorts of things happen. The world changes when little girls can read and write. I was part of a project, World Bank, World Health Organization project in the 90s. So every year the World Bank puts out a report called the World Development Report. 1993, I think it was, they looked at health. So the World Bank is supposed to alleviate poverty, that's the same. And they look at factors which alleviate poverty. And um, they chose health, 1993. And long story, which I don't have time for here today, but an Australian and New Zealander were key to this, Alan Lopez, who's now at the University of Melbourne, to get metrics of how you actually measure life expectancy, not just mortality rates, but disability rates. So how long do you live with disability? How, how, you know, how, how many healthy years of life do you lose, as well as actual years of life? And got this thing called the DAM. When they look at what, they, what determines countries which have good DALIs, in other words, they, you, you, the low levels of DALIs, disability adjusted life years, what was it? So, was it per capita income? So, if you looked across, across nations, you, you, you could not see a pattern according to per capita income. Once a country gets, you know, really extreme poverty is really bad, but once you get to probably around about $5,000 a year per capita income, it, you know, per capita income does not make a difference. Is it how much you spend on healthcare? No. America spends 18, 19% is going up their GDP on healthcare, and they're anywhere between 17th and 35th on the, world, on the life expectancy list. 
We spend 10% and we're up at three, four, five, sometimes number two. So it's not how much you spend on healthcare. So what did they conclude was the key factor, removing all the other ones like female lucidity and what have you, key factor that made a difference? The difference between rich and poor in the community. The wider the gap between rich and poor, in other words, the less fair your society, the less likely you had a fair goal in that society, the shorter you lived. The more cancer, the more heart disease, the more dementia you got. So like female literacy, what's going on there? Is, you know, again, it sounds like a Marxist conspiracy, except it was a capitalist organization, the World Bank, which was coming out of this. And what happens in a fair society is that you invest in what's called market failure. The free market does not deliver health care. Cannot. Never will. Never has. Never will. You've actually got to have government intervention. The market will not supply health care for the poor. Will not supply health care so that it's affordable. Will not supply health care that um, will, not, will not bankrupt you. Will not supply health care that doesn't have monopolies. And education is the same. So in fair societies, the social contract is we have universal health care where we will not bankrupt people. We will give people the same health care regardless of their ability to pay. And of course, if you look at places like the United States, they are not investing in market failure. And they're not as fair communities as we are in Australia. So fairness, control, community engagement, it almost sounds so soft and nebulous, but it's bloody hard stuff with hard data behind it. So coming to the present day, why are we living longer now? Well, if, if the statistic that didn't change between 1890 and 1950 is if you were 50 years old in 1890 and 50 years old just after World War II, your chances of reaching 70 were exactly the same. It didn't shift. What shifted was the chances of young people reaching the age of 50. That's what shifted. That's why life expectancy went up. Young men and women lived longer to middle age. But once you go to middle age, what has changed since 1950 is life expectancy of 50. Now, why is that? In fact, we've maxed out life expectancy of 50. Now it's life expectancy of 75. It's going up dramatically. So what happened? Well, we probably started consuming less salt um, because of refrigeration. But we stopped smoking. It's very hard to find a 50-year-old now who smokes. And when you stop smoking, you used to, you know, most of you were old enough to remember, you, you, you went, if you still smoke, and you went to see the GP, and you said, you've got, you got to stop smoking. You know, five years from now, it's going to be great. You know, Heart disease rates are going to go down. Ten years from now, your lung cancer rates are going to go down. This is an important investment for the future. What's known now is that, in fact, the benefits of accrue after your last cigarette accrue in minutes, hours, and days, unless you take another cigarette. So your chances of coronary heart, myocardial infarction, heart attack, chance of stroke, chance of sudden death start to really diminish and lose really fast. And by the way, they go up really quickly as well. So the most dangerous cigarettes are your first 10 cigarettes. Then the graph evens out. So it's not good for smoking 20 or 40 a day, but it's no good drinking, you know, thinking I can go down to five. 
Five is almost as dangerous as 20. You've got to stop. So anyway, once you stop, there's a dramatic drop in the first two or three days. If you take exercise, and it's the same for other risk factors, if you take exercise for 40 minutes at a moderate level, your chances of a heart attack and a stroke and sudden death drop quite dramatically. And unless you take more exercise, they'll go back up again. You drop your cholesterol, well, the statin goes straight down. Your risks drop straight away. It's not, this is not a year from now. This is not two years from now. This is actually, I mean, so the, and same with blood pressure, whether it's by exercise, whether it's by reducing salt, reducing alcohol intake, or by drugs. Doesn't matter how you do it. So for the first time in human history, what doctors do is making a difference to life expectancy. But it's not doctors in hospitals. It's primary care. It's actually what your GPs do that is making a difference to life expectancy. What doctors do in hospitals, so we, our coronary heart disease rates have been improving, at a two, their death rates have been improving at 2% per annum in the last 30 years. So 60% fewer people, age-adjusted, are dying of coronary heart disease. Fantastic result. But 30% of that are the cardiologists doing the stents and doing the stuff what they do. The 70% is what GPs do and what individuals do for their own lifestyles. What happens in primary care is what's making the difference. And, uh, and this is the sector that feels put upon. It's underpaid in terms of the rest of the system. The hardest job in the world is being a general practitioner, and they are underpaid for what they do. So this is, and, this is a, and we rely on this system. Stroke rates are going down, and that's largely lifestyle. It's only more recently that we've been able to do something about stroke and reduce mortality from stroke. Cancer rates, that's prevention. You know, we've got a health minister that loves introducing, you know, announcing the latest $100,000 a year drug for cancer. They're having minimal impact on cancer survival. Great for the small number of people, fantastic, who get cured by these or really significantly help, but most people don't. So it's about a three to one ratio in many of these drugs. So they might cost $100,000 a year, it actually costs $300,000 a year because of the ratio of three to one, two to one, I should say, in terms of those people who benefit. We're spending a lot of money for not a lot of benefit in cancer care when prevention is actually what makes a difference. Obesity reduction, exercise, stopping smoking. I know I'm banging on about stuff you already know, um, but in fact, it's that engagement at the community that makes a difference. What happens in hospital is incredibly important and makes our, and makes our quality of life better and sometimes our length of life better. But what we must never forget at the moment, and who knows what's going to happen in the future? Dementia rates are dropping because we're educating our kids better, and we were we went through school longer than our parents did. And education delays the onset of dementia. And what's good for our brain is good for our what's good for our hearts is good for our brains. So the fact that we have that dropping of coronary heart disease rates is affecting our brains as well, the healthier brains. So. For the future, for healthy communities, is actually a healthy community is an engaged community. It's a community that feels that they have some control over decision-making about their lives, and if they don't have it, it takes control. And it's one which recognizes that the foundation of our healthcare system, of a sustainable healthcare system, is primary care. Thanks very much.